And it's obvious that humans and animals are not politically equal. We couldn't give them the right to vote. Um, but, but there's a sense in which uh, I think they do share an important equality, and that is the capacity to suffer or to enjoy their lives. And I think that ought to lead to a, a moral equality in the sense that I think their pain ought to count just as much as the pain of a human being, where it's a similar amount of pain. That was a clip from Australian utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer. In essence, utilitarianism is a moral position, an attempt to guide us in how we ought to act and what we ought to value, a principle that could be of great use to us. Though it comes in different flavors, the idea behind it is that we should try to maximize net utility, otherwise known as value or happiness, among everyone, meaning the moral thing to do is to act in such a way that brings maximum happiness and value to the maximum number of people. Hmm. The maximum number of people. There may be something wrong with that statement but I just can't put my finger on it. Perhaps we'll have to take a look at it from Peter Singer's point of view. In the eyes of Singer, it's our capacity for suffering that makes us all equal. Any and all that can feel fear, anguish, sadness, or pain are included in Singer's moral calculus, that is, in the goal to reduce our collective suffering. Utilitarianism is consequentialist, meaning the ends justify the means. Horrendous acts like lying, cheating, stealing, even murder usually can be justified as long as the end result brings about the maximum possible happiness among everyone. The killing of a dictator, for example, may be justified if you believe it would bring about the maximum possible utility. To Singer, maximizing happiness is a lofty idea, but more sobering, solid goal for utilitarians may be in minimizing suffering. And though we can describe the ways in which we suffer in such beautiful prose with our Dostoevskys or Husseinis, we humans do not have a monopoly on suffering. Hi again everyone and welcome back to Litboro, where we explore the works and ideas of your favorite writers and thinkers. But first, a short personal comment. How I see my role here is to both entertain and be a guide for you to new and complex ideas in the ways we tell stories to each other and in philosophical thought, presented in an intelligent, digestible way. You may not agree with everything I will present. I may not agree with everything I'll present either. You may not even be comfortable with some ideological positions I'll be taking you through, whether it evokes internal feelings of guilt or indignance. I understand. It happens to me too. But I ask for an open mind, and with me, you'll find an open mind as well. Here, I aim to give almost all ideologies a fair shot, and welcome all comments. I'll do my best to respond. Speaking of which, I'd really appreciate any comments of thinkers or writers you, my audience, would like to see as well. Just contact me and let me know. After all, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Aristotle said that. Or you may also know the quote from your classroom poster from back in grade school. Regardless of how cliche we may find the saying, it's still one I want you to keep in mind for this episode. Of course, my opinions and editorials playlist will contain a different type of content. It heavily emphasizes my personal take on media and current events. I encourage you to take a look there for my completely subjective thoughts of the moment. But for today, we'll be exploring the works of Peter Singer on suffering, existence, and pandemics. Part 1. Happiness and Suffering What is happiness? Is it feelings of physical pleasure, hedonistic pleasure, or is there something more to it? Does it develop over time as a stand-in for fulfillment? Watching your children grow up, painting a serene landscape, 
even finishing a delightful little novel? Or is it more of a catch-all term and would be better off being interchangeable with the words want or value? Aristotle attempted to define happiness or the Greek version of the word eudaimonia, which carries slightly different semantic baggage more akin to the word flourishing. He spends a great deal of time trying to whittle down a definition. It's even taught in some universities as a course in itself. But I'll hazard a try at imbuing one of his ideas into your supple minds. I'll just leave it right here, a grossly simplified definition. Aristotle believes happiness is the end-all, the thing in which you try to obtain in everything you do, of your own volition of course. You work a job. Why? To make money. Why? To spend it on clothes or food. Why? Because we think it'll give us happiness. Right there. The chain ends there at happiness. Let's try another example. You take out the trash. Why? You want a clean home. Why? It gives you comfort to have a tidy home free of smells. It gives you happiness. The chain ends there, again, at happiness. Try it out yourself with anything. But of course, the fact that we still need to ask the question of what happiness means shows that even Aristotle's definition may lack universality. The whole concept lacks universality. We don't really have an end-all definition, and we need that to talk about end-all consequentialism. How can we even attempt to maximize happiness if we don't have a concrete definition of the word? On top of that, if you subscribe to postmodernism or existentialist ideologies where there's no set definition of happiness or meaning as it's different for everyone, it becomes that much harder to be a practical utilitarian. There's a chasm of asymmetric information here between you and understanding what everyone else wants. It can be incredibly isolating. What makes you happy may not necessarily make others happy. Your definition of fulfillment may not be the same as everyone else's, so how can you maximize other people's happiness without a rigorous definition of happiness? Perhaps it's easier to talk about suffering or pain. Strangely enough, what may hurt us, though ultimately still subjective, dependent on the individual, seems to have more universality to it. Peter Singer spent most of his life as a preference utilitarian, but has since stated he now identifies more as a hedonistic utilitarian. So what does that mean? Preference utilitarianism is a stance that seems to build on a foundation of postmodernist thinking, where there isn't an inherent set definition as to what pleasure is for all of us. It seeks to maximize each individual's distinct personal preferences on what gives them pleasure or happiness or fulfillment. Though there is some controversy in resolving situations where one person's happiness is derived from another's suffering. How do we mathematically calculate what actions should be taken by comparing the net degree of pleasure and suffering from such actions? Some other pitfalls are that individuals with strong passions or preferences may overrule others. And you must first be able to hold preferences to be a part of this moral framework. People in comas, with dementia, babies that have not yet developed preferences, they'd all be largely left out. Hedonistic utilitarianism is where the rightness of an action depends entirely on the amount of pleasure it tends to produce and the amount of pain it tends to prevent. Pleasure versus pain. It solves the problem of including a wider set of agents into the framework at the cost of, perhaps, rigor in how every type of preference is taken in account. All these flavors of utilitarianism hold different implications. As we discussed at the beginning, we humans do not have a monopoly on pain or suffering meaning that an animal's capacity to experience pain, which is entirely evident in the way chickens, cows, and pigs squeal and squirm away from the slaughterhouses, 
includes them in this utilitarian calculus. In most modern societies, we wouldn't normally say the suffering of uneducated people are any less important than the suffering of top scientists, for instance, or world leaders, though sometimes the world does work in this way. In other words, we generally don't tend to subscribe to a might-is-right worldview anymore. And in this trend, Singer's utilitarianism smashes through the Enlightenment-era bias towards rationality. Suffering is what makes us all equal, animals included. It's no wonder that Singer has been a longtime advocate for animal rights. His 1975 work Animal Liberation argues for veganism and popularized the term speciesism, where we have an unfair bias towards exploiting animals for our gain. As omnivores, when we, humans, decide to buy meat from the grocery store, we are making an economic decision that necessitates the long-term confinement and killing of an animal. Now, there are many other moral factors at play here, such as the economies of scale in meat processing plants are at a point where purchasing meat may be more affordable than other plant-based protein options. So for some people in the world, eating meat is a necessity to live. However, for many others, it's a choice. A choice in regards to taste, easier access to protein, and convenience. All pleasures that can reasonably be outweighed by the mass suffering and death of animals in hedonistic utilitarian calculus. Therefore, Singer's brand of utilitarianism runs counter to our desire to consume meat. Under his philosophy, it would be best if we were all vegans. Again, I implore my audience to practice open-mindedness, even if you personally disagree with Singer's ideas. Remember, the mark of an educated person is being able to consider his words while holding reservations. And for those that agree wholeheartedly, I implore you to also consider that others may not have the same foundations of utilitarian values in arriving at this conclusion. An excerpt from Singer's Animal Liberation. It is easy to take a stand about a remote issue, but speciesists, like racists, reveal the true nature when the issue comes nearer home. To protest about bullfighting in Spain, the eating of dogs in South Korea, or the slaughter of baby seals in Canada, while continuing to eat eggs from hens who have spent their lives crammed into cages, or veal from calves who have been deprived of their mothers, their proper diet, or the freedom to lie down with their legs extended, is like denouncing apartheid in South Africa, while asking your neighbors not to sell their houses to blacks. There have been criticisms to Singer's position, most notably with economist and previous United States federal judge Richard Posner, arguing that animal rights often conflicts with, quote, the moral relevance of humanity, and that empathy for the suffering of animals does not supersede advancing society. It's an age-old argument, one that may seem cruel to some, but has great merit to others. Taking Singer's analogy of personal morality based on proximity, we see a similar version of Posner's argument when it comes to colonial exploitation as well, especially given that Singer may place humans and animals on equal ground in their capacity to experience suffering. The analogy is this. Some argue that empathy for the suffering of not only animals but a subset of people, for example, the indigenous people in America, does not supersede advancing society, and that exploitation of these people is justified as it brings about economic progress. It depends on your foundational values, and if you are one that believes there are longer-term net benefits to having a technologically advanced society and must exploit to expedite that process, this could be a defensible position under utilitarianism but that's usually not the position most hedonistic utilitarians would take. 
Alternatively, if you don't value happiness across all individuals, perhaps only valuing happiness for select individuals, or that economic and technological progress is the end-all over human happiness, that is, if you don't have a utilitarian view at all, then you may find Posner's criticisms defensible as well. Following Singer's ideas on minimizing suffering, in his 1972 essay, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, he argues that affluent individuals in the Western world are morally obligated to donate much more to humanitarian causes than the rate they have been. His essay begins like this. As I write this in November 1971, people are dying in East Bengal from lack of food, shelter, and medical care. The suffering and death that are occurring now are not inevitable not unavoidable in any fatalistic sense of the term. Constant poverty, a cyclone, and a civil war have turned at least 9 million people into destitute refugees. Nevertheless, it is not beyond the capacity of the richer nations to give enough assistance to reduce any further suffering to very small proportions. The decisions and actions of human beings can prevent this kind of suffering. Unfortunately, human beings have not made the necessary decisions. It's profoundly disheartening holding these moral convictions, knowing that something can be done about the great amount of suffering in this world. The very thought of it weighs us down. It's taxing enough by itself, but there's more to explore down this rabbit hole, and anyone here struggling with finding the motivation to carry on should stop right here. Continue on with your day, or night, with other things. Watch comedy. Enjoy a precious meal with loved ones, because from here on out, we'll take a darker turn. And if I was a hedonistic utilitarian, I would stop right here, because the rest of this episode will not make you any happier. In fact, it's almost certain to produce, in its most mild form, uneasiness, and at the most extreme, anguish. You have been warned. Part 2. Case Study. The Button and Anti-Existence. Here's a thought experiment. There's a button where, if pushed, it would kill all sentient life you included, painlessly. If you had this button in front of you, where the only choice is to push the button or walk away, continuing with your life, what would you do? It may sound like a silly question. Most would simply walk away. But I'm asking for you to put yourself in the mind of a utilitarian with strong moral convictions. Meaning, do you think existence itself brings about a net happiness or net suffering? We'll return to this question. Peter Singer does not consider himself anti-existence otherwise known as antinatalist, but his works do have relevant implications. Antinatalism is a specific utilitarian position predicated on the belief that there is more net suffering in the world than happiness, and this will persist well into the future. Therefore, it's better for us to not have existed at all. One quick thing again before we dive in, this is a general philosophical concept and not a personal statement on your value in society. If I may inject my personal opinion, you all listening in here are extremely intrinsically valuable. And even knowing that you're out there with your own perspectives on life, a literal entire world of meaning is simply colossal. You matter. And while it will be difficult to disassociate the personal you from the theoretical metaphysical you, here, to fully understand what I'll be explaining, you'll have to take the latter interpretation. Now, let's carry on. The antinatalist believes that there are and there will be more net suffering in the world, with factors like overpopulation, pollution, perverse political structures, you name it, all ensuring the state. As a result, the antinatalists believe that we're better off not existing, not being born at all, 
which is a net neutral on the happiness versus suffering scale. And in utilitarian terms, a net neutral is preferable to net suffering, as there's no intrinsic value to life itself, only value in the net happiness or pleasures of life. In a 2010 New York Times blog titled, Should This Be the Last Generation?, Singer entertains the idea of anti-existence. Perhaps it's better to never have been born at all, and once born, the best choice would be to never bring another life into this world. But in his conclusion, he pulls back, saying, in my judgment, for most people, life is worth living. Even if that is not yet the case, I am enough of an optimist to believe that, should humans survive for another century or two, we will learn from our past mistakes and bring about a world in which there is far less suffering than there is now. Antinatalism is generally an unpalatable, uncomfortable idea for us, if not purely based on selection bias, meaning those that exist and keep on existing, like you and me, will be the only ones that can learn and consume these ideas a set of existing individuals that must consider that we'd be better off not existing at all. Though Singer is an optimist and believes suffering could be reduced in the future, his ideas have antinatalist implications on certain members of the population. Take David Benatar's 2020 paper, Famine, Affluence, and Procreation, Peter Singer and Antinatalism Light. One of the implications the paper discusses in response to Singer's essay, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, is that those living in abject poverty who cannot envision their children leaving lives free from suffering, would have a moral duty not to procreate. It's a dark, dystopian idea. Benatar concludes that the same moral mechanism and duty that Singer places on the rich to give to the poor implies a duty on the poor as well to not procreate if they cannot envision a life for the child where happiness supersedes suffering. Of course, to avoid this implication, we'd have to settle for a less demanding interpretation of Singer's original argument. Returning back to the thought experiment, armed with all the knowledge you have now, putting yourself in the mind of a utilitarian, would you push the button? Would you make the choice to hit the button eliminating all life painlessly and call it mercy? Or walk away, leaving everything as is? Would you consider other outside factors like how such an absolute authoritarian choice should not be made by only you? If so, by who? Leave a comment on what you think. I'd love to read and respond to all your thoughts. But for now, we move on to a more personal scenario. Part 3. The Pandemic Calculus Last year, the COVID-19 epidemic spread worldwide, ravaging major city centers, causing lockdowns, and forever changing the lives of many. Retail stores shuttered their businesses, unemployment rates rose in many countries, and there was even a 2020 stock market crash. While thought experiments are useful to highlight ideas, taking a closer look at a real situation, a moral dilemma that applies to you right now, will better cement how a practical application of hedonistic utilitarianism would look like. If we must act in such a way to minimize suffering for everyone, both ourselves and others, during a pandemic where carelessness can facilitate the spread of the disease and in the worst case, death, how should we act? We can better dissect this problem by laying out the choices we have available. Those that must go out and work to gain income for the family will have to leave their homes. There's no way around that. For those that can afford to stay at home, whether they have the option to work from home or don't need to work because they're retired or still in grade school, how should they act? Each neighborhood, each street in fact, has different levels of risk and we're constantly bombarded with information about new strains, infection rates, and mortality stats. We have all this data at the palm of our hands, updated daily, and in some areas even hourly. 
but what does this all mean for you if you want to take a walk in the park or go to a restaurant after lockdown? What is the calculus a utilitarian must make? Each time you go out to a public place, let's say to enjoy a meal at a restaurant with friends, you evaluate the risk based on how safe your area is, how likely you'll get the virus, and how likely you already may be an asymptomatic carrier. Then you weigh that likelihood along with the potential harm you may cause if you were to be a conduit for infection, which is also a best guess. Let's take an admittedly terrible situation where if you unknowingly infect two others, and they may infect only two others of their own, and so on at the same rate of spread for 10 degrees of separation, you'll end up being the cause for 1,024 new infected cases. Furthermore, as of December 2020, an Imperial College of London report by Dr. Sabine L. Van Elsland tells us that in the UK, the mortality rate for those already infected lies at around 1.3% at the beginning of the first wave and was lowered to around 0.8% by the end of the first wave. I do not wish to give any inaccurate statistics during an ongoing pandemic with many changing factors, so treat these infection rates as completely theoretical and any case fatality ratios as only indicative. Regardless, in the terrible situation I've laid out, by helping spread the disease, your group of diners may end up killing a handful of people and causing a great amount of suffering to many others. It doesn't matter how many degrees of separation away it is, a utilitarian is consequentialist and looks at the results of actions, however far it may reasonably extend, even if there's no way to practically measure it. So the calculus a utilitarian must make before deciding to organize friends out at a restaurant is to weigh the predicted pleasure you and your friends will get from the outing, as well as the economic benefit to the restaurant owners with the potential suffering caused if your group were to end up spreading the disease. Of course, weighed by the likelihood, however large or small, of it actually happening. Of course, the worst case consequences are dire, but if the likelihood of that worst case coming about is small enough, though it would have to be infinitesimally small to balance the enormous potential harm, your group's lunch may actually be justified. Then you'll have to rinse and repeat this entire process, calculating the impact of any risky action you may choose to take. The amount of misinformation out there makes it that much harder to determine the right course of action, and the practical issue with being this type of utilitarian means that you may be subject to analysis paralysis. After all, you'd bear the heavy burden of deciding if the pleasure you gain outweighs the harm you may cause. In fact, we may all do this calculation at varying degrees, some of us even subconsciously, given of course that we understand the harm a pandemic may bring. And I can't help but wonder if we'd be happier without thinking of this at all. There seems to be an irony and a paradox where this introspection over the harm we could bring about, or consideration if our very existence is a good thing, causes us guilt and anguish. If everyone thinks like this, perhaps we'd have a kinder, happier world where we'd more readily give to charity and empathize with our animal brethren. Or we may just as well be under constant existential and moral duress that not even considering these topics at all would bring about greater happiness. But to Singer, shutting our eyes to suffering is not an option for any serious moral philosopher. We'll get tunnel vision, focusing on our pursuit of happiness, that we allow immense suffering in the world. After all, now, the banality of evil seems not in our malicious intent, but in our ignorance. Humanity's ignorance of how we unknowingly harm and let the world's suffering pass us by unobstructed. Thank you everyone for making it once again to the end of my long form analysis. 
I appreciate having you. Truly. I do hope you learned a great deal today on utilitarianism, though we didn't cover the conventional philosophers John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, I thought taking a contemporary approach with Peter Singer would be more relatable for you. These utilitarian ideas will serve as the perfect foundation for our next episode, analyzing the works of Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. Tune in next time, and remember to leave a follow if you enjoyed this episode. As a small content creator, any interaction helps massively. Thank you.